0: This is the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 30. I am your host, Dill, and today we sit down backstage with none other than Steel Dragon bassist Jorgen, who may be better known as Jeff Pilsen. Jeff's first taste of success was in the 80s with the platinum-selling rockers, Dokken. Since then, he's lent his talents to a host of others, including Dio, the Michael Schenker Group, and a few of his own ensembles. But for the last 14 years, Jeff has been playing bass for the regeneration of Foreigner. Jeff and I spoke before he took the stage headlining this summer's Jukebox Heroes Tour with White Snake and Jason Bonham's Led Zeppelin Evening, and our conversation went a lot like this. All right, all right. So with that, I thought a good chunk-off point is just is cutting right to the chase. In, in you in college, you studied music in college, mm-hmm. correct? I did. Um, University of Washington? That's correct. Did you graduate? I did not. Okay, so was there ever a point where you had to have the talk
1: with your parents that <laughs> mom and dad? I'm- <laughs> well, I, I did that by just leaving school and not telling them for a while until they discovered, and then, then, they, then we had the talk. But, um, yeah, they were not happy, but at the same time, I kind of think they understood that it was really important that I follow through with what I was doing. Which was you know playing in rock bands, um of course they they wanted you know wanted me to have an education, but at the time, the thought was you know it'll be something to fall back on. he could be a teacher if he doesn't, you know, so right. you know, I just explained to them that look i am going for broke on this, you know this is this is all or nothing, so and, and I don't think I'd be a very happy teacher, so <laughs> so I'd probably do something else so so this is not the end of the world anyway, they were. Cautiously supportive, like I say, not happy, but they were, they managed to get their arms around it, even though it was several years before I had made any money whatsoever. <laughs> right. We'll
0: get to that. That's, a, that's an sure. interesting point. Let me just try, I think I need to turn up my volume just one second. Sorry. Sure. Seems very sensitive. Okay. Okay. Um, that said what were the first couple of years coming out of college I mean, were you in a band that was moving along or I was uh, well or? the
1: band that I kind of left for was um, we were a progressive band this is kind of the end of the progressive rock period and so we were uh, we were a progressive rock band called Christmas um, and what we did was we decided well you know we gotta eat <laughs> so we started a lounge band called the Merrymakers. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a three-piece band, you know, it was keyboards, bass and drums, kind of Emerson Lake and Palmerish. Um but we went out and played sometimes five and six nights a week as a lounge band uh to make a living. And um and that worked well for a while except that after a while it became it really started affecting the ability for the progressive band to Move forward. You yeah. know, it just took up so much time and energy. However, we did it, and um, and that's what I did for, yeah, I guess a year year or two after college. That's that's how I that's how I survived, and and my whole focus was writing, performing, and rehearsing with this progressive band that only did one show. <laughs> no, really? So that was, that was doing a good job
0: at at least paying the rent. There was no odd jobs on the side or anything? No odd jobs
1: on the side. No. Cool. No, no,
0: No. We made a decent living. And then at what point did... Uh, this is, was this in San Francisco at the time? No, this is Seattle, actually. Oh, this is in Seattle. And yeah. then did you... Um, then I moved to San Francisco, yeah. And that was just a, a bigger market, or why, why San Francisco?
1: I moved to San Francisco because um, I went to San Francisco the year, uh, the summer after I graduated high school and um, because my sister lived north of there in a town called Petaluma and I moved there I well during the spring break of my senior year in high school I went down and visited my sister at the time I ended up auditioning I saw an ad for a band that sounded like I would be perfect for and I went and auditioned for them and I got the gig (laughs) the problem was of course I hadn't graduated high school yet but they were very cool. They said they'd wait for me until so this was like probably March or April when I auditioned, and they said, "Well, sure, we'll wait till June." So June, sure enough, I moved. I moved down there to join this band, which lasted three whopping weeks. <laughs> Why any particular reason? Well, I mean, a lot of things. Um, partly, I kind of tore the band apart because I I brought my best friend, who was a drummer, with me. And as soon as I got there, I forced them to fire their drummer and use my drummer. So, I mean, it got off to a bad start. Um, but I was, it, was, it was a band that I thought, these guys just felt so big time to me. You know, right. they had marshals, you know, and stuff like that. And one of the guitar players quit before I even got there. And so, you know, it was some typical kid stuff. They were older than I was, but they were, you know, still young by musician standards. Right. And, you know, it just fell apart. So I ended up spending the summer, that summer in San Francisco, um, with my best friend, the drummer, and we, you know, I mean, we really slummed it out. We were living in a rehearsal place, you know, no shower, no, um, you know, just sleeping on the floor, um, re- literally scavengering for food. Right. I mean, we would we would we would gather twenty-seven cents a day so that we could buy. Uh, each, so that we could buy a fifty-four cent can of Franco-American spaghetti, so we could share that for dinner, and literally, that's what we ate. That, that's, I am not exaggerating. That's what this podcast is all. Yeah, about. yeah. And we we struggled. My mom ended up sending us a big can of peanut butter, and that we really, really—that's probably the only nutrition we got because God knows Franco-American spaghetti had no nutrition. <laughs> and that's how I spent my summer after high school. Um, But anyways, in that time, I met some people who, uh, a guy by the name of Mike Varney, who has become a a name in the music business, and and Mike, uh, I met Mike, and a couple years later, he ended up doing a rock opera with Marty Ballant from Mm -hmm. the Jefferson Starship, and um, so they asked me if I would come be involved in that, because when I had met Mike, we, we hit it off. So I moved to San Francisco totally out of the blue to work on this um, this project, uh, and uh, it was you know it was very rewarding, um, and we ended up making a record called Rock Justice. Um, but uh, that's how I got back to San Francisco. What are you getting paid? How were you making money at that point? It's, well, once once I moved to San Francisco, um, we were managed by a guy. Who had a houseboat in Sausalito. And I don't remember what I was doing for actual money. I think he was giving me something. He must have been. Okay. Um, but I, but I, I was living on his house. He, he actually moved in with his girlfriend somewhere and let me have his houseboat. So it was great. I had a houseboat in Sausalito. 20 years you know, that's, that's twenty years old. I've
0: heard that story that, there's, that people stay on houseboats in Sausalito.
1: It was amazing. That's very fun. It was a wonderful experience. Um and and then the rock opera got a record deal, so that's, you know, we, we started making money then. It wasn't a lot, you know, right. it, was, it was minimal. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, I've been fortunate. The only time I ever had to work a straight gig on musical was uh, before... The, the, the first time I moved to San Francisco, there was a point before I joined the rock opera where um, I was staying with my sister... And I worked at a furniture store for a week. And that's the only time I've ever, ever, ever in my life right. had to do anything non-musical for employment. It's pretty cool. <laughs> that is very
0: cool. Um, so before we s- segue into, you know, your time with Doc, and um, before you, you know, reached a, a level of success, how, how were you defining success in your mind back then? Well,
1: success was completely revolved around being in a... You know, famous rock band that made you know big records and toured the world. You know that was okay. that was completely what success was. No, you know I had no idea about any any thing about the music business, or you know never any thoughts about you know investments or anything like that. Sure. All completely out of my consciousness at that point. Um, so that was the goal. You know, how do you define it now? Success now I define as being able to survive doing something you enjoy and love. And, and hopefully be able to set yourself up for a retirement of some sort that's comfortable and maintains your standard of living to the best that you can. Um, but in there, happiness at what you do is a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. Now, some, now, that doesn't mean you couldn't be somebody who has a family you adore, a job you're not crazy about, but it allows you to spend a lot of time with your family. Yeah. That, to me, to also would be success because, you know, the focus there is on the family. You know, so, um, but for me, because of the way I really, you know, absorb what I'm doing and really, you know, get into what I'm doing, I have to enjoy my work. So I'm lucky. I yeah. enjoy my work, and that, and again, for me, that's a huge part of it.
0: So prior to Docin. Was Rock Justice? Was that um, your first foray to a studio? Did you have studio experience?
1: Um, well, it, leading up to it was um, doing the demos for what became Rock Justice. Um, was when I got, first got introduced into a professional studio. I mean, I'd worked, you know, in little studios before mm-hmm. that, um, you know, even halfway decent ones. But but working up uh, to Rock Justice, we. We recorded demos in a you know a, a real studio that ended up coincidentally being where I ended up living because the studio ended up selling. It was a it was a studio called the Church in San Anselmo, California, and um, like a lot of a lot of records were made there in the early seventies. It was you know very hippie, organic kind of studio. Um, but then they, when they sold, um, the guy that ran Rock Justice, who was Marty Ballon's dad, bought the building and let us all stay there as as part of. How we you know interacted with the, the musical, um, or with the rock opera, but anyway, um, but uh, the uh, that was that was when I got into studios, and then of course recording rock justice was the first time I was in real big time mm-hmm. studios.
0: Okay, um, so let's cut to early eighty three. What brought you to L A. in the first place? Just well, what
1: brought me to L A. was you know I had been in do, you know working in San Francisco for a couple years, and it just it had really hit a, a low point. I mean, I, I had been playing with a guy by the name of Randy Hansen, who was still a dear friend, and we had a band where um we did you know, he sang half, I sang half, he kinda wrote half, I kinda wrote half. Um and it was an interesting mix. It was rock but it was a little bit progressive, but totally nothing uh, uh, you know I mean this you gotta remember this is now the knack has just come out and all this kind of stuff so it had nothing to do with what was in the mainstream at that point um, in San Francisco now in LA I, I had heard that there was a rock scene starting to happen so that's kind of why I moved to LA was to, was to see, what, see what that rock scene was like um, so I moved to LA in early 83 got into a cover band to, to stay alive um, and found out that there was a rock scene there. Okay. Yeah.
0: And then was it um, was it Mike that recommended you to mm-hmm. to dock? And was yes, it that was. a? Did they hold um,
1: auditions or was it pretty much? Well, um, you had the inside track. And well, um, yeah. I mean, I think they had been auditioning people. I, I kind of forget. I'm pretty sure they had. I know that there were guys who were talking about and too. Um, but then Mike, um, Mike recommended me, and, and so what they did is they came and saw me at a club, and they, they kind of offered me the gig, although they wanted to get together and play. So we did. We, we, we got together at uh, a place which is coincidentally a house that Don Dockin later bought for, to, for, his, for his own house a few years later. It's very coincidental. But anyway, um, but there was a studio out back. We played for 20 minutes. We blew out the power, and the power blew. And they go, "Well, do you want to join the band?" Yeah, like, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of that. You're simple. in. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of that quick.
0: That's very funny. Um, so at the time, there they have a record deal at the time. They have a record correct? deal, right? So are you brought in as an equal member? Are you a hired? Not on the, at the time? On, the, on the
1: first record. They they gave me a portion, not an equal portion, as I wouldn't have expected. But for all future income, it was it was to be equal. So. Um, and from then on, it was equal. So uh, the only thing I wasn't equal on was the very first record, which I, again I wouldn't have expected it to be. So, um, but because I toured it, all the touring, everything we made from then on was was split equally. So it was it was a very very very
0: good offer. It was okay. It was very very fair. And then once you go in the studio for Tooth and Nail, you're a co-writer pretty much. Yeah. Our, yeah, yeah. You
1: guys. Well, we we even split our writing though. Our managers. So it wouldn't have mattered if I written nothing or everything, you know. But um but uh but yes, I did get to co write. And and that's one of the things they brought me in. They wanted me to write. You know, they were mm-hmm. they were very that's one thing, you know, as big of egos as there were in Dachken, it's pretty amazing how much they didn't want to hold me down, you know, bring in the new guy. They were very encouraging, write, create, you know, be part of it. They 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 wanted to expand. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think they saw me as being something a little out of the total heavy metal thing, and you know, could bring in a little bit of musicality, and and they were very open about that, and I thought that was really cool. Um, but yeah, our managers from from pretty much day one said, "Look, let's you should just split everything equally. Let's take away, you know, take half of that, what breaks yeah. up bands, and so let's just do that." Didn't mean we didn't argue about other things, but <laughs> well, I was surprised to learn that how
0: contentious you guys were right from the start. Is that true? Like, was tooth and nail recording? Well,
1: tough the, or? It, not not as tough as later recordings. Now, tooth and nail. I mean, there was some some difficulty, but but now the band was um, it wasn't it wasn't that contentious a tooth and nail. The problem was when we were done with the record, and we did the interviews with um, the, the bio people that wanted to do bios on us to figure out you know the press angle, what the Publi- publicist came up with was, hey, listen, it seems like Don and Dor- George don't really like each other. Let's use that as the press hook. And of course, it became a self fulfilling pros- prophecy and our own, you know, worst nightmare. Um, so, was there some truth to it? Of course. Um, did they kind of see things differently in a lot of ways? Yes. Um, but, but you you only learned that because it was made a publicity angle right, right. a lot of bands have just as much animosity and you wouldn't have heard about it you <laughs> know so that was the problem with us and then then once the open wound is there it's pretty easy to stick a fork or a knife in it you yeah. know so just to back up a second did you so you toured with them
0: when you joined you go on tour on um, It was the the Breaking, Breaking the, Chain the Chain Chains album yeah, so was yeah. that the first time you've done an ex- extensive touring
1: well actually at that point I'd done more touring than anybody in the band it was funny um because with Randy Hansen we 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 toured a bit, Um but I mean that was the highest level. I'd never been on a tour bus before, or anything like Somebody that. Had a fan so.
0: tour before with 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 uh, Randy.
1: Randy, actually with Randy it was, it <laughs> like was a station, station wagon. Yeah. Even better, even better. Yeah, person. yeah. So, um, but that was the first time we all experienced that kind of touring because we had a tour bus from day one. Mm-hmm. We were we were kind of spoiled, really, and we we had a. A road manager who went on to become a great manager, Rick Sales, who got these deals in hotels for us that we were staying at better hotels than the headliners a lot of times. So, so we got spoiled quick. <laughs> That's so funny. Did you go to? Did
0: you go to Europe or Japan or did you? Not right away. Uh,
1: first time we went to Japan was '85, and uh, well, we did we did film our "Into the Fire" video in in, in London in '84. Uh, but we didn't tour England or uh, the U or Europe until '86. Okay.
0: As that version of Docket. Okay. And coming out of Tooth and Nail, you actually mentioned it how you were kind of green to the business. What, 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 were the, what were some of the first lessons you learned?
1: Um, the first lessons. Well, the first lessons I think you start to learn are how much everybody else takes <laughs> off the top of what uh, of what's there. Um, and you learn real quick that you know just having a record deal does not mean you're rich. <laughs> and you know the thing is, we had really good managers in Cliff Bernstein and Peter Mensch. They were very careful with money. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't do the old thing where they prop up the rock star to make him think he's rich, get him all in debt, and then he's beholden. They didn't do that. The unfortunate thing about them is they were also very hands off. So they. As far as the personal side, as far as the camaraderie within the band, they kept their distance. So they probably, a lot of things happened that, had they been closer, could have been avoided. They could have mediated it? and yeah, maybe, maybe. As it was, Rick Sales kind of became that guy, and I think that might have been part of the reason why he decided to become a manager, because he said, well, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> um, but, uh, but um, you know, they, they were very clear... We shouldn't be doing that. You guys should be taking care of yourself. And we were the wrong band for that. We, there was a lot of ego. There was drugs involved. There was a lot of things that are dangerous to a band. Um, and um, we were young and foolish. Were you guys all relatively the same age? Uh, I was the youngest. Don was the oldest. And we were, uh, we were about four and a half years apart. I okay. mean, there was, there was a range right. of four and a half years there.
0: And by and large, Tooth & Now was a you know, platinum seller, or multi-platinum seller. So did you
1: see did did the money come in? Well, by the end of the Tooth and nail tour, we were making a decent living. Um, mind you, uh, we were still an opening act, so we were using tour support money to do everything um, you know and we and again, we had tour buses and we were staying in decent hotels from the beginning, but that was in the days when record companies you know underwrote tours and they gave you tour support um, so we weren't making money on the road at that point by any means. We were costing money on the road. Um, and that, that was coming out of our you know bottom line, really. Um, but I remember we we did okay. Um, actually, you know, Tooth & Nail was a slow platinum record. It went gold at first. That took several months. And I, I don't even think it went platinum until the next year, to be honest with right. you.
0: Right. Wasn't it Alone Again that kind of gave it a second gave Alone Again
1: gave, or... it a, gave it a big jump, but that... That was when it went gold right around the time Alone Again came out. So it took several more months to go platinum. Um, the next record sold, you know, Under Lock and Key, sold uh, a pretty good amount. It was, like if for some reason, three hundred and sixty-five thousand, like the first week or two. Something sticks out in my mind. Um, so and we built, you know. But then back the attack went platinum in three weeks. Mm-hmm. So so we, we you know we, we built up quickly. Um, but we built album by album as they as bands could do back then that they can't really do anymore. You yeah, know? No. So um so it was a slow build for us. Uh and after and Key, I remember seeing decent amounts of money. It was never like you always thought it would should be. Yeah. And mind you, you know, I you know you know, Bobby Blotzer from Rat was a really good friend around that point. And Rat were selling millions of records, so he had a lot more money, and I would I would look at him and think, "Wow, he's sure got a lot more than I do," and you know. So it always felt like we were like these underdogs, um, but you know, I I had faith in the band, and it was it was interesting because uh, I mean, like at one point, I was offered to join Quiet Riot, uh, but this what was point were they they were. It was after their two big records, so they were they were about. To start going down, although they were still kind of riding high. Um, but I remember thinking, feeling in my gut, you know, and Kevin was, was courting me pretty hard and he, he was offering me, you know, big chunks of money. But I just remember in my heart really thinking, no, doc has more talent. There's a, there's a talent about and I should stay with this. This is, you know, there's, there's something long-term there. And that, you know, and I, I didn't show a lot of wisdom on a lot of things, but that was one thing I, I think I was very wise to do. Right. You
0: speak of long term. Were you were you seeing ten years down the road, twenty years down the road, or were you by, pretty
1: by much by the by the by eighty five, eighty six? I was starting to understand that it could be a career. Um, I wouldn't say I was seeing ten years down the line, but I was definitely looking, trying to look at things in terms. You know, for one thing, Cliff and Ber- Cliff and Peter really brought out in us they, the whole idea. You know, it takes three albums to build. So you know, it's, right. you know, and and I'll never forget after he heard. The Tooth and Nail record. I mean, the, the day we're first playing him the Tooth and Nail record, the first thing he said was, "Can't wait till the third record." Like, <laughs> 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 but, 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 but we you know? <laughs> But that that was his way of saying, "Hey, we're building, guys. Yeah. You know, This is we're building up to something." At um, least you know you got a job for the next three or four years. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's that is kind of how I was looking. At, I was starting to understand. Okay, this is this is something that builds. We go out there and we tour a lot. we, we try and sell records. You know, of course, as I say, you know, seeing the guys in Motley Crue and Rat, and then Bon Jovi when that happened, it was like, we want that, we want that, <laughs> you know. Um, and you know, and it felt like those were our peers, but that they were getting bigger breaks. Yeah. Um, so I, w- I remember kind of thinking, well, when are we going to get ours? And and then it sort of felt like, okay, next time around we will. And um, so I was looking at it as a building process, and and but but I don't know if I could have seen five or ten years down the line. Um. I knew that there was a lot of friction in the band, so I I was starting to think, well, what happens if this band falls apart, too? Right. There was there was that thought going through my mind. Well, let's go there. What happens when it does? Well, that's when you know I, I started a band called Flesh and Blood with a guy by the name of Michael Diamond. And he and I had been good friends uh, writing together for the last couple years, always in the back of my mind thinking that Dokken could fall apart. And Michael... Michael also played bass, and I was very into singing at the time. So our dream idea was for Michael to play bass, me to sing, and George to play guitar, and Mick to play drums. That was what we envisioned as being something that would happen after Dokken, because it seemed like most of the friction was with Don. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when the band broke up, indeed, it was Don that left the band. Uh, but it didn't work out that way. Um, but, but, my, but I had been writing and working on things with that in mind, um, You know, just uh, I was a little late getting it going because by the time I did, you know, that music had fallen fallen completely apart. So, um, you know, I I wasn't I wasn't powerful enough in how in my um, assertiveness at that point. I should have been more assertive, but then again, I was still doing drugs, still you know, living a little bit in rock star land, you know, a little bit of of la la land Mm -hmm. and dreamland. and like I say, not assertive enough, probably not self confident enough, um, kind of like I say, not not living in a practical sense, um, and and not really realizing how wow if if this does fall apart, you're going to really have to grab the bull by the horns and do this. I right. just I don't think I had that awareness. So was that mindset carrying through?
0: A lot of the 90s like it seems like you you played with um msg mm-hmm. for an album you hooked up with dio for a couple
1: of well albums. i think and the 90s is when all of that became clear to me you know what had gone wrong what i had done wrong and all that um and you know of course you know melodic hard rock music you know fell off the face of the earth for a while there so um so when when uh when MSG came along, that was a great thing. I mean, I loved them as people. I had played on the record, and then they, we did an acoustic tour together. And that was a great thing because, I, you know, as people, I loved them. And it was a really fun touring experience. And then, you know, I made a lifelong friend in Robin McCauley. And, you know, I mean, I went out on tour playing 12-string guitar alongside Michael Shanker. I mean, you know, it's like... Getting the best guitar lessons in the world for free, you know, getting paid to get them, you know so I mean a lot of lot of great things then when dio came along that was just that was a godsend not only financially but musically it totally reinvigorated me, especially about playing bass. I fell in love with playing bass again, mm-hmm. and that was dio is what really did that that just made me love playing bass again and that's that's stuck till this day I, I still love playing bass yeah not to get too
0: revealing but why financially because Dio at that correct me if I'm wrong I mean he's yeah yeah he's a you know rock legend but is he selling as many albums as oh not at with, that point or, no but or is it just the two but it was G just and that and I was
1: it, out of work I had gotten in a, you know, a lot of credit card debt at this point um, what and and uh, and Ronnie you know, was was it was solid work. I mean, they didn't he didn't pay an amazing it wasn't the pay wasn't amazing, but it was constant. Um and you know, I it j and, and plus I was very passionate about it. It mm. was just um more more so passionate than financially. Um so uh yeah it was it was it was just it was a really good thing all the way around. Who
0: rounded out his band at that point?
1: That was Vinnie Apsey was playing drums. Tracy G was on guitar and then Scott Warren came in and played keys okay. um, a really great band live we were just so great and it was just so much fun and um, you know Ronnie was a dear friend and Vinny still is a dear friend
0: yeah, yeah he's I'm from Cortland, New York that's his that's where he's from oh, of course I am yeah, so he's a wow he's a, interesting he's a legend to us yeah, of we, course D.O. Way <laughs> <laughs> exactly. a very
1: very dear friend of mine is uh, writing a book on Ronnie. And she just spent a bunch of time in Cortland. Oh, that's, who's she, that? Her name is Sherry Folio. Oh, and she's, she did a lot of research in C- Cortland. I mean, over the past couple of years, she's done a lot. Yeah, that's it's interesting. F-O-G-L-I-O is how she spells her last name. Oh, gonna, I'll
0: go that tonight. C-H-A-R-R-I-E. <laughs> yeah. um, at this point, too... I, is so anybody looking out for you? Are you? Do you have management, or do you have an agent, or it's you're you're
1: you're hustling? for no, your I'm hustling. Dinner? Yeah, hustling for dinner. Um. Yeah, yeah, pretty much on my own at that point.
0: And then where are you when you know ninety nine Napster comes into play? You know the lawsuit from Metallica, iTunes comes into existence. Right. So this whole sea change
1: in the industry happens right were
0: you, were you when this this is well at ninety
1: nine I was still in Dokken, um because dakin reformed in late '94 um, and stayed to i stayed in it until early two thousand um, and one technically and or no mid two thousand and one midtown two thousand one i guess somewhere around there anyway um and uh so around ninety nine I was still in dakin um and could we see what was coming? Absolutely not. We all knew, instinctively, I think, that the way record companies had marketed CDs was a big mistake. Because we were aware that it didn't cost them any more to make, right. and they were charging double. So, you know, that just felt wrong. It just felt like, wow, that's, that, that's a con that's going to that's gonna come back backfire. to bite somebody and, and backfire. Yeah. Um, could anybody have predicted? I, I mean, anybody that says they really saw what was coming, I think. Is, <laughs> is no, I mean, it.
0: me personally, I was like, uh, as soon as the lawsuit, as soon as Metallica filed the lawsuit, I was like, that's gonna, that's the end of that. Like, it's going to go back to you know, you got to pay for music. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Who yeah, doesn't yeah.
1: pay for music? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. I know. Well, I mean, you know, it's funny, and I remember thinking at the time. How strange that Metallica, of all people, the wealthiest of the bands, is doing, you <laughs> know, maybe they had the, and, they had and, and, the means, and, and they did have the means, and you know, I, they had the principle <laughs> and all that. It's just it's too bad because I think the message got lost partly because it was coming from them. Yeah. You know, it sounded like spoiled rich kids. Sure, you know, sure, um, I mean, that's a good point. Um, and and uh, and then when the file sharing thing just went, you know, crazy, it's like. Then you, you, know, by a couple, just a few years later, then the writing was starting to be on the wall. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when it became so discouraging, you know, about making records because making new music became more and more difficult. Yeah. And that was, that was, that was a, that's a sea change in the music industry.
0: I mean, that's still true today. I saw an interview yeah, with of course. yourself and uh, Kelly that said exactly that. It's just, nobody wants to sink the money into a full album and it's. You know, yeah, that's not the thing. It's just really hard to do. Um, around that same time, you took on the persona of Jorgen. Yes.
1: <laughs> How the hell did that come to be? That came to be because the producer who was doing the music for the movie was Tom Worman, who had done *Our Tooth and Nail* record. Okay. And Tom basically just called me up and asked me if I would, because at the time the idea was they were going to get an actor to play bass. So they needed somebody to come in and you know you do on movies you often do the music first so um he called me up and said "Would you play on the sessions I said, of course uh, um, so i I did, and I started in and right away the director started coming to the rehearsals and he saw the interplay between Zach Wilde, Jason Bonham and myself and um, number one, they made me a musical director pretty quickly and then uh, then he just saw the way we interacted and and he liked it. it was like because it was like real musicians yeah, yeah. interacting, which is what he wanted to capture. so yeah. one day he just said to me, he said, "How would you feel about actually being in the movie?" I said, "I think I feel I'd like that." <laughs> yeah, so you know they had to go screen test me and make sure I could say lines or whatever but but it was pretty much a given and uh it was just a wonderful experience how yeah.
0: long, was how long did, how many uh was it like a couple well, weeks of shooting
1: or? Um, well i I remember that we we began the mu- the rehearsals for the music the first week of January of 2000 and and in the and we got done with the music uh sometime around the end of February or, or early March it took a while to pull it, cuz we rehearsed it then we recorded it and and they really wanted it to have a band feel mm-hmm. so we really rehearsed like a band and it came up with a band sound and and um and then recorded all the music, and, and, you know, so it took a little while. Um, and then the filming started in March, and pretty much all of it, and then the filming stopped, I believe it was the first week of June was when it yeah. wrapped. So, uh, and I wasn't filming all that time, right. you know, because I wasn't in every scene, but, um, but I did a good chunk of it, and, uh, you know, we were at the L.A. sports arena for a month doing the live scenes, and That's it was fun. it was really great.
0: <laughs> Now, would you ever meet? Was George Clooney the producer on it? Yes. Or his... Pro- yes. Did, did yeah. yeah, I did meet him. Come yeah. around. And he
1: actually, he actually came up course. to me. He was very personable. He introduced himself. He knew who I was. Um, I had a fairly lengthy chat with him. He was extremely friendly, um, <laughs> and I mean, I, I was almost disarmed at how friendly yeah, and yeah. nice and unassuming he was, and supportive he was, um, and. Yeah, it was kind of shocking. <laughs> he didn't throw out a I fucking love Dream Warriors." <laughs> no, no, he didn't. He didn't say anything like that. I I doubt if he was a big Doc fan, but but he did know who I was, and I, I was I was very flattered, and you know I didn't take that for granted. Um,
0: and also, uh, again not too revealing, but that's a decent paycheck, no?
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a very decent paycheck, and it it, it allowed me to buy my first big Pro Tool studio, and that was. Very significant in my life because that kind of opened up the doors for so many things that I've gotten to do since. Spend the money to make money. Spend the money, yeah. To to I I finally had like a real I had real recording equipment, you know, um, because Pro Tools was about to become state of the art Mm -hmm. for everybody. And and it's funny, I mean, when I first sought to buy my studio, um, that wasn't necessarily total common knowledge. But somebody gave me that knowledge. They said you should buy Pro Tools, so I did. Had to spend a long time learning it, um, but that was the best move I ever made. Is that at about the same time?
0: um, I know you're into production, right? Is that is that how you you know building Pro Tools? Is that how many? Well,
1: that's what's allowed me to do as much producing as I've been able to do because I have you know and have continued to upgrade and maintain my studio, so I have really state-of-the-art stuff Mm -hmm. um i have a great great recording studio and and production has always been an interest to me but now that you can't you know i mean it's i have a studio attached to my home you know it was a garage at one Mm -hmm. one time and now it's a big old studio um so uh and then we had to build a garage which is another pain in the ass (laughs) but um but uh but that was impossible before this era, really. Yeah. So um, that, and, and that was what allowed me to pursue that. And uh, and part of my production is that I'm able to do it at home. I mean, considering how much I travel, the last thing I would want to be doing when I get home is to go to other studios and produce. Yeah, yeah. You know, this way I can do it at home. And even though I'm in the studio, and it's not like I'm with my family 24-7, at least they're right there. Yeah. It's a lot better. You know. All right, let's um, let's get a little
0: into Foreigner, and then I can uh, I'll wrap it up with the final five questions and let you go. Okay. Um,
1: so two thousand four, Foreigner comes up. How did that come about? Well, that came about through Jason Bonham because Jason was working with Mick Jones, and they were trying to figure out what he was going to do. Um, you know, Mick, uh, uh, Lou Graham had left in two thousand two, so Foreigner kind of, for all intents and purposes, kind of broke up. Uh, and Mick wasn't sure what to do. He, you know, he still knew he was vital. Um, was he going to do a Mick Jones solo project or, and Jason kind of pointed him and like, Hey, you know, you own the name foreigner. Let's, you know, let's do that. So, so th- they, they called me, uh, and I came down to play. Um, and the original design was just to work on weekends cause I was going to do all these productions during the week. So <laughs> that was the plan. Uh, and that lasted for a few months, but, um, but, I mean, immediately when I came down there, the, the chemistry was there. I loved Mick. I loved Mick's playing. And um, we just hit it off musically instantaneously. It was absolutely instantaneous. And um, and then as soon as Kelly Hansen came in the band in March of 2005, we started working and... Within a very short amount of time, it was like it was apparent. Okay, this is going to be a full time gig. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Did you help with that search to find Kelly? Well, not directly. No. Um, Kelly had contacted them because he heard Mick Jones was putting something together. He didn't know whether it was he he too didn't know whether it was going to be Mick Jones or porner or whatever. But Mick, uh, but Kelly had sent in a, uh, a demo tape that was very impressive, and um, Mick had heard it and thought it was great, and then through some. Well, actually, I can tell you who exactly through Ricky Phillips of Sticks. Oh wow! Uh, Ricky yeah. Phillips um, talked to Tom Gimble, who who was you know in already in Porter and he said, "No, you got to check this Kelly guy out. He's really <laughs> great." Um, so we had an, so we already had another singer booked and ready to do the first couple shows, and Kelly came down, sang for sang did a few songs, then left, and then mixed it down. He goes, "What are we going to do?" And we all just looked at him. and We said we're going to get that guy oh <laughs> and mix it. I think you're right, and we did. <laughs> what a nightmare for the other guy. <laughs> it was a nightmare, <laughs> but it was meant to be. This is yeah, yeah. this
0: is I mean, yeah. what a perfect fit. I mean, it seems like you guys have really been uh I think you've been through this area three times in the last 4 years. Probably, easily. Yeah.
1: Um we tour a lot. We are we have been we've been doing 110, 120, 130 shows. One year we did 138 shows. Consistently since two thousand and five. It's yeah, crazy. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it is crazy. So
0: it's been fourteen years now, and you're the musical director now. Mm-hmm. So what does that entail?
1: <laughs> not a lot because there are great musicians, okay. and there's not a lot to do. But you know, you just kind of you focus the rehearsals. You you make sure everybody is really on board, doing the right parts. You know, you occasionally have to rein people in, but but again, everybody's such a great musician that I don't feel like I have to do much at right. all, really. Is it's that, just my response. How long
0: have you been, have you had that title?
1: Um, kind of from the start, but I mean, I don't think I don't remember when it was made official. But, but I mean, I I've I've had this weird thing in the bands that I join. I just kind of fall into that place right. <laughs> with with every band I've been in, sort of. So, um, it just kind of turned out that way, and only became technical when it had to be. Okay. Is the band a democracy or is, is Mick. No, s- Mick's the leader. Um he's he's the unquestioned leader if it comes to that, but but he's just really benevolent in the way he right. he leads a band. And because he's not there a lot, we you know, we have to make decisions more and more on our own sometimes. I mean but we always do it with him in mind. What would he do? Um and he is the final say on everything. Um but like I say, he's more and more I mean, we have such a rapport now that I think he trusts us on a lot of levels. Um and part of our job is to take care of the things that he shouldn't have to deal with anyways. Right, right. You know, he shouldn't have to deal with everything. And Kelly's very on top of it. Kelly is a really you know, he's a born leader, so he's he's good at that and I take care of what I have to do with the band and, and the recordings and everything else and, and Mick shows a lot of faith in us. Um and he knows that our agenda is his agenda. You know, I mean, it, mm-hmm. foreigner only makes sense when you follow Mick Jones's agenda. Right. I mean, it, why would you do anything else? <laughs> you know, and he knows that we really, really get that. So, so it's um, it's it's by no means a democracy, but it kind of feels like one because everyone is encouraged to do what they do to the fullest. How much? How far ahead are you guys? Do you guys plan? Like, do you know what you're doing next year? We have dates booked well into 2019. Sure, Um, we have plans. You know, I mean, I know we're going to be next summer is going to be spent doing a lot of festivals in Europe and things like that. Um, So we're we're usually about a year ahead as far as I mean, not all the shows for 2019 are booked, but we're well into the booking of them. Um, And as far as product, we generally. thinking ahead of what kind of product I mean I have a good idea what's going to be coming out early next year so you know Mm -hmm. that kind of we're we're
0: we have to be several steps ahead okay Um, another question just about uh, putting money on the table in 2011 that's correct you were a voiceover for Mortal Kombat yeah
1: that's right was that a lucrative that was well (laughs) it was lucrative but it was short-lived so I mean it was only lucrative for a minute (laughs) was was that a, a it was a video game. Okay. I was Johnny Cage, okay. and, which, which was the lead character, actually. Um, that was really fun. That came about through a casting agent who, unfortunately, passed away in a car accident just a year or two later, which was really sad because she, she, was, she was so wonderful, and she was so helpful. And, you know, she's How the did one she that come, come across you? She came across me because she was friends with my wife, and my daughter... She was t- she was helping my daughter to do ch- children's voiceovers. Um, my daughter is now fourteen, but uh, I, and I think Bridget passed away in two thousand. I think it was before two thousand eleven, actually, I, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, around somewhere around there. But um, so my my daughter was what she was you know four or five when she. When she Dealing with it. and my my daughter, she was helping my daughter do voiceovers. My daughter did some voiceover stuff, which was really cute. <laughs> Good way and to pay for and college. then that just somehow spun into that. I always kind of wanted to do it, and then she said, "Well, here I can help you do this," and j- just kind of fell into place. It was really cool. It's funny. I mean, it just seems like such an odd
0: thing to <laughs> to see it is. that on your bio, but it it's is. great. I mean, it's very <laughs> it cool. is, but it was really
1: fun. I'd love to do more of it, but like I say, since she passed away and because I'm so busy with this, it's kind of sure. It would be sure. hard
0: to. You know, put a demo together and try and pursue it. Um, speaking of busy,
1: uh, Superstroke? Yeah, although we're going to change the name. <laughs> uh, uh, but but, the, but that record we're probably gonna, is probably going to come out about April of next year. Uh, the record is done. It's all recorded. I'm extremely happy with it. The label is extremely happy with it. We're trying to figure out a way of somehow putting it on the road in some fashion for whatever we can, really tough to do around the Foreigner schedule, but we're going to really try because we're really excited about it. It's, it really came out fabulous. What's the elevator pitch for that, for the folks at home? Well, you know, I mean, you have, you know, George Lynch, Jeff Pilson, and Mick Brown from Dawkins, so three of the four original Dawkins members. And then Robert Mason from Warren, who is just an incredible singer and frontman. Um, and and was the second singer for the Lynch Mob for George's band years ago. Okay. So so there's a, there's a synergy there. There's a crossover there that all makes sense, um, and it's just it's it's taking Doc and elements and then putting a an extremely powerful voice in front of it that uh, that gives it a whole different nuance. So it's there's a bit of a there's a bit of docking in there there's a bit of lynch mob, but then we kind of morphed into our own kind of thing that that gets pretty deep musically. There's there's musical stuff in there that is very very deep. I mean we we kind of stretched it out a little bit, but in a very musical melodic way uh, that again I'm just extremely proud of, excited for musically inspired by and really anxious for people to hear. Happy to hear it. Yeah, it, it came out really fabulous. Got to hear the whole record too. It's it's like one. It's it's a situation where it's not like there's one song and then everything right. else is filled. It's kind of a whole thing, which is kind of rare to do. But it really came together as a whole piece. Yeah. Well, it goes back to you know our generation. You know, yeah. Yeah, it does. Album. You're right. And that's exactly how that came about. Yeah.
0: Well, look forward to hearing it. Yes. Um, all right. The final five. Sure. These are five frivolous questions that everybody gets. Okay. Uh, question number one is uh, your house is on fire what music related memorabilia or something
1: close to your heart do you have well being into. as i live in fire country in, uh, what are you Marina, and uh santa Maria, california i i know <laughs> uh, i grab my 55 les paul than i have i grab my 58 p bass um, and i probably grab my 63 p bass and i grab my 65 Es three thirty five. Those are the four things I would probably. Do. You got those close together for? Uh... Uh, not close enough, but I have the cases close by in case. <laughs> <laughs> Question number two is: uh, If I was at liberty to give you, uh, you a check
0: for a million dollars for any charity, which charity would get it? Um,
1: maybe Children of the Night Wendy Deals Charity, okay. which which helps you know kids that have been. I mean, just some sad sad stories about all sorts of bad things that happen to (laughs) children and uh, it's a a really worthy charity so that's the first thing that comes to mind alright fair enough
0: Uh, question number three is what would your walk up music be to the pearly gates
1: oh the beatles um (laughs) hey june (laughs) (laughs) why not (laughs) okay on the
0: flip side of that what is stuck on repeat in hell
1: the Grateful Dead. Oh, really? Just not a Grateful Dead fan. Yeah, I can. See I've that. tried. I've tried, and you know, probably not everything that they've ever done, but so much, so much of what they do, I just, just can't relate to. Yeah, I, you know, I'm. I i can not
0: say I'm. Uh, I, I fall in that, band category, but. Yeah, can't blame you. Uh, last and final question is: uh, What's what concert have you witnessed that they'd say is your best best concert experience if you've seen it, as a fan? Right.
1: Um. Wow. Best concert. Well, probably, probably the Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer concert I saw in 1972, um, because that introduced me to Prague, and Prague then became a huge part of what really made me serious about music. And bass in particular, um, and Prague music is what pushed me to want to study music because Prague music introduced me to classical music. I mean, I had been playing the cello in school, but um, I don't think I ever would have taken it as seriously as I did had Prague music not come along and just blown my mind and just turned me into a fanatic. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that con- and, and because that concert, so. Specifically brought me into it I would have to say that was the one that blew my mind and and it was also the showmanship involved it was not just you know all for the head I mean it was it was a visual dynamo and they didn't even have a lot of effects back then they were just right. so they were pretty raw but just so great and Keith Emerson was so great and I just I just remember walking out of there mind blown, had to start investigating all the music, and then I be- that through that, I think I became familiar with Yes, and Yes was the band that changed my life, you know, Chris Squire's bass playing changed my bass playing, and changed everything for me, and like I say, that then led me down the path of wanting to study classical music, so I went to school, you know, I went to the University of Washington, and uh, it all started there, so that's probably the concert that really turned my life around. Well, Jeff, thank you for giving me well, so much time. Well, thank you, Tim. Was a that was great. You. That was that was very, very pleasure. Great
0: questions. Good. Great, great questions. <laughs> I hope that helped. Very yes. much so. All right. A big thanks to Jeff Pilson and all the folks in the foreigner camp that made it possible. It was a real treat to get escorted backstage and find a quiet place to talk to someone I've admired for a long time. So. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. All right, we'll be back next week with another well known music journalist who's profiled some of the best in the business, so don't miss it. And as always, we'd like you to subscribe, rate us, and leave us a comment on iTunes to help boost our profile. And also, like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter because we're too cheap to hire bots to like our posts. That's not good rockin' Alex. All right, episode 30 is done. E30 is finished. Good night, Cleveland.